Wonderful. Why don't we uh, pray one more time together as we begin? Okay, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much today, Lord, again, for your grace. Lord, thank you for your mercy. And Father, we thank you for the example of the Lord Jesus, as it says, Lord, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, leaving us an example to follow. And in the coming weeks, we hope to faithfully look at that example that he has left us. And so, Lord, today we pray that you would give us with new commitment, with new zeal, give us a heart to obey, give us a heart to not only apprehend your word, but to be doers of your word. We ask and pray, Lord, that you would help us now search, even as we sang, that you are the judge of the secrets of the hearts of men. Help us, Lord, to surrender and help us, Lord, to gain a heart of wisdom as we continue to number our days. Father, we ask for your help. Help me. Give me a mouth to speak your word. And by the power of your spirit, give us ears to hear what you are saying to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we come to a new chapter in the book of Hebrews, and um, I'm excited to launch into the the last two chapters of this great and glorious book. It really has been a tremendous blessing. Um, I don't know that we will spend as much time through chapter 12 as we did chapter 11. Obviously, chapter 11 was uh, one of those chapters that I just, you know, been looking forward to preaching so much, and I think the time went so quickly, even though I did 18 sermons in chapter 11, uh, which is just so glorious. But but we are here now in a new chapter, and there is a new page that has turned in the exposition of this book because we are uh, on the really the the latest uh, exhortation or the imperative of the letter. We really haven't seen an exhortation since chapter 10. You go back to chapter 10 and you'll see it there in verse 35. The author of Scripture says there, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. If you would, as we come now to chapter 12, uh, the, the author of Hebrews is sort of resuming the thought that you find there in chapter 10. So this is very largely resumptive of what his point has been to exhort us and to challenge us in, in in persevering and in enduring, as he goes on to say even there in chapter 10, he says, for you have need of endurance. That really is the point. We need endurance. And therefore, he is going to exhort us here how to endure. And really, this classic statement of running the race that is set before us, I'd like to look with you today at the idea of the weight of sin as we contemplate how to run this race. We're going to look at the example of Jesus, Lord willing, next week uh, in this text. I just could not get that far. Um, just could not do it. But we're, we are looking at this text before us today. So let me just read for us again verses 1 uh, uh, here in Hebrews. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's what we're going to be focusing on today. Let me say this. and The way that we're going to run the race with endurance number one, is going to begin by recalling 
the legacy of faith. Well, of course, that is what chapter 11 was all about. It was calling us to look at all of the examples of the men and the women of old who went before us and who, because of their faith, were approved by God. And therefore, Hebrews is saying now, therefore, on the basis of those examples, and as a matter of fact here in verse 1, when the author says, therefore, he uses a very interesting conjunction in the Greek text, only used one other time in the entire New Testament. And it's uh, really for the purpose of intensifying uh, the summons to consider what has gone before us in chapter 11. And that's what we are to do. We are to look back. We are to reflect on the legacy of godly men and women and reflect on the fact that their legacy, their example, their faith is what surrounds us today. Now, you notice the language that's being occupied here. This metaphorical, athletic sort of language that the author is using, the language of uh, of not only running the race, but here a great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. Now, that language was sort of common parlance in ancient Greco-Roman world of the of the stadium crowd that would gather to watch the athletes compete, let's say like in the Olympic Games or uh, back in the Greco-Roman time, the Isthmus Games that they would compete in. Much like our Olympic Games, there were all sorts of different competitions. Well, the, the, the author here is focused zeroing in on one competition specifically, and that is the competition of running. Running. What the author has in view here is not so much the sprinting of the hard, the hundred yard dash as much as he has the concept of, of a marathon in his, in his view. But really, again, the author says, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. What he's saying is that as we look back in redemptive history, we are surrounded by the examples of men and women who have left us a godly legacy to follow. If you would, again, this is metaphorically speaking, it's as if all of the saints that have gone before us are, are literally witnessing our own race today. Think of that. God is no longer watching Spurgeon on the scene. He's no longer looking at Jonathan Edwards or Luther or Calvin or the Reformers. He's no longer looking at the Old Testament and even the New Testament saints. His eyes are now on the stage that we occupy today. And his eyes are not only fixed on us, but we have a great accountability to the people of God that have gone before us. Let that inspire you. That you, by virtue of your union with Christ, by virtue of coming uh, into salvation and into the sphere of salvation, you have now entered into the same redemptive stream as the people of God of all ages. Now you are running the same race that they ran. And that race is depicted for us here in Hebrews. And just turn back briefly because really the essence of all of this is summed up in the middle part of chapter 11 that we've already looked at. But I'd just like to visit that with you one more time. 11, uh, uh, Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 13. He says, All of these, the people of old, died in faith without receiving 
the promises, having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. See, they they had the same race that we have today. We are striving towards a goal. We are headed towards a finish line. And all determining eternity, uh, uh, eternity determining goal. That's what we're heading. The people of old should serve as a perpetual reminder to you and to me of the lasting tradition of godliness. And now we leave that same legacy. You will leave a legacy for your children to follow. You will leave a legacy for others in the church to follow. You are going to leave a legacy, an example for others in your family, for people around you, in your community, at work, that are going to look at your example of the type of life that you led. In other words, the kind of race that you ran. We're going to get into the merits of that race. But it's so important because just as the people of God, they were sojourners and so are we. They were aliens. You want to talk about identifying with those that went before us. Think of it, folks. Just as they were strangers and exiles, so are we. Just as they suffered persecution, so might we. Even uh, the end there of chapter 11, we saw that even the faithful were being put to death for their faith. And you know what? We can say... So could we. The potential is there. And so are we because the reality is there for untold multitudes around the world who experience this severity of persecution every day. We are not exempt from the type of life that the men of old have lived. That's why when we look at this great cloud of witnesses, it is a reminder and it is an accountability that you and I have to walk in their footsteps. To know that our trials as we are tempted and tried, that we too are undergoing the same kind of trials that the men of old experienced. Nothing strange is happening to us when we suffer. I mean, the whole book of Hebrews is, uh, uh, is, is, a, is, a, is a theology of suffering. The whole book of Hebrews is preparing the people of God who are experiencing suffering, how to accept that suffering and how to and how to view it from the right perspective, the right angle, because even our savior, the author of our faith was perfected through sufferings. And as Jesus himself said, the servant is not above his master. If they hated him, they will hate us. In other words, we will, we, we must expect the same manner of suffering. The second thing though, I think is really the heart of it all. Not only running the race that is set before us by recalling the legacy of faith, but also by recognizing, listen now, the purifying power of faith. 
Look at what it says here, back in chapter 12. He says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. That's a mouthful. That's why I couldn't get to verse 3 or even verse 2. I'm going to go inch by inch. This is very precious real estate for us. But understand that it is God's will to purify his people. Just follow down a little bit further in the context. Go down to verse 4 here at chapter 12 and you'll see that. You have not yet resisted to the point of bloodshed in your striving against sin. The author of Hebrews is basically saying, look, you have not yet suffered to such an extent in your striving in in, in sanctification. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not disregard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. You see that there? Let's stop right there. It is for discipline that you endure. Now, I mentioned this previously, but oftentimes when we think of discipline, we think primarily of corrective discipline. We think that God is disciplining us in the sense of He is punishing us. That is not what the author of Hebrews has in mind. What he's saying is that our suffering is not so much a corrective discipline as much as it is a formative discipline. He is training us. You ever heard an athlete talk about blood, sweat, and tears? (laughs) That's not because they're being punished for something. It may look like punishment, but really what's going on is that that athlete is being trained, is being prepared for the race, for the contest. And that's exactly what God is doing to us in our trials. As long as we are suffering for righteousness' sake. As long as you're suffering for trying to live the Christian life and not for, as Peter says, your own foolishness. As long as as you're suffering for righteousness, know that God is working in your life. Don't doubt it, not even for a minute. God is reproving us. He is refining us. He is building our character. And how does that happen? But through trial. It doesn't happen apart from trial. I heard one preacher say, I never grew the most on the best days of my life. You grow the most the most in the most trying, challenging, suffering-filled days of your life. That's when you grow. Because that's when God is at work. And God, really, is training us. What He wants is He wants, if you would, to follow the metaphor of Hebrews, He wants athletic, spiritual men and women... <laughs> He wants to build a super athlete in the faith. He wants to make us spiritual athletes who are trained by the word of righteousness. Now this training, uh, we need to take serious. He says, run with endurance the race that is set before us. We are called to a particular kind of Christianity. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, do not settle for some sort of mediocre, apathetic sort of nebulous, sort of wandering around, floating about, put it in neutral Christianity. Be intentional. Be sober. Be serious. Be zealous. Be on guard. Be vigilant. Scripture calls us to such sobriety. Now, 
Let me point something out here because this is important. What we're being told here when it says run with endurance the race, what we're being told here is not so much what the author is looking for is a burst of, of energy. He doesn't want a hundred yard dash to the finish line. What he's calling us to is a marathon style race where the type of stamina that we need is a long distance endurance and a long distance conditioning. For a time there, I guess because I had seen so many folks fall away, one of my unfortunately favorite phrases was, we'll see. We'll see. John MacArthur tells a story of meeting with a young man every day, practically, for this intense discipleship. This person really needed intense discipleship. Early in the morning, they would get together and meet and break open the Word of God and read the Scriptures together and, and, and get into the Word of God. He would pour into this, this, this individual only to see him fall away within the time of a year. We'll see. I'm not so much impressed with the explosion of apparent zeal and apparent fruit. I want to see it over the long haul. Talk to me in five to ten years. You still loving God? You still have fresh love? You still have, are you still keeping yourself in the love of God? You still developing communion with God? You still excited about the Puritans in ten years? You still excited about theology 15 years from now? That's what I'm concerned with. Is what is my walk going to look like when I'm 50, 60, 70? Lord willing, by reason of strength, 80. That's what I want to know. What kind of, what kind of, uh, 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 finish am I going to have? How am I going to end the race? That's crucial. I've seen a lot of people start well and finish terrible. I've seen a lot of people Start terrible and apparently finish very, very well. That's really what's at stake. The language that he's using here, the language of metaphor, according to one commentator, is very, is very insightful for us to think about because listen to what William Lane, William Lane is one of those absolutely necessary commentaries for Hebrews. But he says this, the terms of the contest that Hebrews is talking about, he says it invokes thoughts of tense exertion, maximum effort, and constantly renewal of concentration of energy on the attainment of the goal. Beautiful. And he shows all these ancient sources where this language that's being used here of running and enduring and a race is used in ancient context with that very intensity that, 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 that the athlete was exhibiting maximum effort, tense exertion, a, a, a constantly renewing his or her concentration. Isn't that remarkable for sanctification? Tense exertion. Be zealous, Jesus says, Revelation chapter 3. Be zealous. Zeal is a virtue that is virtually lost today. When's the last time you read a book on zeal? I don't remember the last time I ever read a book on zeal. Pastors are afraid of zeal in the church. (laughs) Calm down, young man. Right? But the Bible calls us to be filled with zeal that is informed with the knowledge of God. Maximum effort. Think about that. Maximum effort. And I love this one. 
constantly renewed concentration of energy. In other words, when we think about the purity of an athlete, what we're looking at is the purity of mind and heart. We're looking at the purity of body and soul, if you would. We're looking at the purity of a disciplined life. And think about these athletes, how they live their lives. Um, I recently looked at the diet of Tom Brady. You guys know who that is? <laughs> it's this awful diet. You look at the thing and you go, how can you eat this? This is terrible. Where's the fries? Where's the Coke? Where's the shake? There's none of that. He eats like a rabbit and he wins five Super Bowls. That's a man that is exhibiting tense exertion, maximum effort, constantly renewed concentration of energy so that when all the chips are in, he's the one lifting up the trophy. That's exactly what the Bible is calling us to. And let me just bring it to another level for us, brothers and sisters, as we go from the physical, temporal, finite, earthly plane to the spiritual, eternal, invisible plane of our Christian lives, it's all the more intense. What does Paul say? They do it for a perishable crown. We do it for an imperishable. You see that? And Paul says right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, everybody runs, but only one runs to win. To win. We are striving for something much greater, brothers and sisters, than a shiny little silver uh, trophy after the Super Bowl. And the Super Bowl is a great achievement, but it is nothing in comparison to the finish line of eternity. Think of it. When you arrive on the crystal shore, when you reach the land of Canaan, when you arrive... Finally, not at a mountain of blazing fire, but when you arrive at Mount Zion, when you arrive at the new Jerusalem, the city of the living God, can you imagine the coronation? Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future... Don't lose sight of that phrase in your life. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, not only the apostles, not only the theologians of the church, not only famous preachers, famous teachers, not only big personalities in evangelicalism, not just me, not just me, but all who love His appearing, you will get a big fat crown on that day. And you will just cast it right back at His feet. <laughs> Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. That's the prize. That's the finish line. That's what you're running towards. I love this one. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I love this one because we 
I believe, in one sense of the word, we all fall into the category of rich people. From a global perspective, no question, we're all rich. Look at verse 17. Instruct those that are rich in the present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves. Listen, Listen now to the language here. Storing up for themselves treasure or the treasure, listen now, of a good foundation for the future. I love that. So that we might take hold of that which is life indeed. We are running towards life indeed. That's what we're running towards. And what Hebrews is telling us here is, look, you need to rid yourself of anything that hinders you from running the race well. From running the race well. This is no different than what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. You know that. Where moth and rust and thieves come in and take it away. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Just as Jesus counseled us to treasure heavenly things, He also called us to tear down earthly or sensual things. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Really in keeping and probably in the background somewhere of the text of Hebrews is passages with the sayings of Jesus like this. By the way, when you think of the latter New Testament uh, uh, writings, which you're talking about, you know, uh, Hebrews, 1st, 2nd Timothy, 1st, 2nd John, Jude, those kind of letters sort of at the latter end of the New Testament, a lot of those letters reflect James, reflects the, the sayings of Jesus. Uh, it's just remarkable. That's a remarkable study. But behind Hebrews and this idea of laying aside these kinds of things, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right hand, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. I don't think Jesus would have made it a Fox News with that kind of language. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go down into hell. Wow. What is Jesus saying there? Is he calling for literal physical mutilation? Of course not. It's actually deeper than that. Spiritual mutilation. The Puritans called it mortification. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, just to show you that the apostles continued this tradition of, of, of calling for severity. Severity. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, you know this text. Paul says, now, the NASB says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. That is a very unfortunate translation. As much as I love the NASB and will continue to preach the NASB, because I think it is the, the probably the more literal translation, and I kind of like that kind of thing. 
But really, the more literal interpretation of the Hebrew verb nekrao literally means put to death. Literally, kill. Kill what is earthly in you. That's in your members, your body. Again, it's the same sort of severity that Jesus was calling for. Put to death immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God is, will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them also you once walked when you were disobedient. Or in your disobedience. Or excuse me, no, I messed that all up. In, in them you also once walked when you were living in them. They knew the difference. They had tasted and they had, they had lived that life. They had a walk in disobedience. Put them all aside. See that verse 8? Put them all aside. That's the language of Hebrews. Lay it aside. Now, two things here. Look at the text back in Hebrews. In Hebrews, we are given two, I think two categories, right? Of what we can call hindrances to the Christian life. Hindrances to running the race that is set before us. There is the amoral, meaning non-moral necessarily. And then there is the immoral. And that's what we're looking at here in Colossians uh, chapter 3. There is those, there is those immoral passions, sins, anything that is blatantly sinful that we know violates and contradicts the word of God, even as Romans tells us that apart from the law of God, you would not know sin. So anything that contradicts God's word, God's law, overtly, explicitly, is sin, and that has to be met with absolute severity in the Christian life. No tolerance whatsoever. However, there is another subtlety here, and you know that, because it says not only not only the sin that so easily entangles us, but it also says every encumbrance. You see that there? That word encumbrance is the Greek word that literally means something bulky. <laughs> That's the literal BDAG definition. Some, something made of bulk. Uh, some object of bulk. In other words, it's a weight. It is something... Now, now think about what is being said here. When Hebrew says, lay aside every encumbrance, every bulky thing, every weighty thing, uh, what is he saying there? He's saying, take it off. The word lay aside was used in the ancient games to speak of the athlete disrobing and preparing for the race. In other words, they took off every article of clothing they could to make them more efficient, more aerodynamic, more, uh, 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 you know, just, just more of a powerful runner, more effective that they could. I mean, think about the folly, like, I love the Olympics. I don't know if you watch the Olympics. When the Olympics come on, it's like, you can't get me away from the Olympics. I have to be very careful because I can, I'll watch it all. I will watch snowboarding, figure skating, gymnastics. I love the Olympics. Trisha will testify to that. But how funny would it be if you are at the race of your life, you're going again against uh, Usain Bolt, I guess the fastest man in the world, right? And you show up to the most important race of your life. And you show up in a pair of jeans. You think the crowd would probably laugh at that? (laughs) I think so. And when we, 
when we fill our lives with hindrances, encumbrances, weights, maybe they're not sinful. There's nothing necessarily sinful about wearing a pair of jeans to a race, but you sure are not going to be effective. Now, this should cause us to really reflect on what is our life made up of right now? What are the things that occupy our time? Remember that as an athlete, and if we go back to the concept of what does it mean to be an athlete, let me remind you of some of the things that an athlete goes through in order to be effective and efficient, right? This is what it could require. It could require rigorous exercise, as you know, minimizing distractions in your life, prioritizing your time for your, for your goals, discipline in diet, Meet, uh, meeting goals and producing visible results. Also, a total determination to win. Overcoming obstacles, and listen to this one, proper guidance from others. You need people to c- coach you. You need people to encourage you. You need people to guide you along the race of faith. But we need to ask ourselves, what are some things in my life that are weights? What are some things that can hold me back? Where am I investing my time? Uh, I tell you what, I've got written here a number of examples. I can tell you this. I recently met with a good friend of mine. He's part of a huge evangelical ministry. And that ministry, as much of a blessing as it is in his life, is holding him back theologically. And it has become a weight in his life. He cannot run freely. He cannot be as explicit as he wants to be in his doctrine, his theology. And here is a ministry that's holding him back from progressing spiritually. Isn't that incredible? Be careful. This is a subtlety in our lives. You know, I I would say these weights are kind of like fleas. Sometimes you don't know where you pick them up. Next thing you know, you look around and your whole life is full of weights. Right? You're spending way too much time with that hobby. You're spending way too much time with that entertainment. You're spending way too much time with that group of people. They are not edifying you. They are not encouraging you. They're not building you up. You, you, you've, you've lost focus. And if there's something that an athlete does is they don't lose focus. They are constantly focused in like laser sighting on the goal. Does that describe our walk today? Oh, and then there is the explicitly sinful, right? But notice also with that, he says, lay aside every encumbrance. Now let's focus in on this phrase. And the sin which so easily entangles us. Now there is some exegetical debate in this text because this is an interesting construction. The author is saying, lay aside not sin in general, but if you want to be literal to the Greek text, he is saying, lay aside sin specifically. It is tain euristaton hemariaton. It is the sin. So that causes some great inquiry on behalf of the exegete that is trying to interpret what did the author mean by the sin. And some, like John MacArthur, he, he, uh, posits the possibility 
that it's not the sin that we would each look at and say, uh, well, this is what I struggle with, and that we each have our own personal struggle. Um, actually, MacArthur takes that position, but he does present an alternative view in that the sin is actually a predominant sin that is that is predominant and that is absolutely fatal to the, the race of faith, which is unbelief. Uh, look with me at Hebrews chapter 3, because if that's what the author has in mind, he's already raised that in the text. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there is, that there may not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And the sin there he's zeroing in is unbelief. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Okay, so this is a parallel passage. So what I'm tempted to to say is that no, it's actually the former view. It is the view, I believe, that there is a particular sin in the believer's life that is particularly vexing. But here's the thing. It's not just that it's particularly vexing. He also uses this word that implies that implies uh, the, the the facility of sin. In other words, the fact that it is so easy. And as one theologian said, you don't want my sin and I don't want yours. But it, it may be, in fact, that Hebrews is saying there is always going to be something to the walk of every believer of a particular sin that weighs us down. And that we must, by the Spirit of God, we must put it to death. Weights, sin, anything that hinders the run of the race of faith. I want you today, brothers and sisters, take stock. Look at your life. Write it down. Break out a journal. Do a list. Do some spiritual heart work. You know, today it is no longer trendy in evangelicalism to engage in self-introspection. Oh, that's an old Puritan thing to do. I don't know. The Bible says examine yourself. And so maybe we should examine ourselves and just to see what is the weight? What is the sin? What is that, what is that one thing that hinders me? And then what are those non-sinful things that are attached to me like weights on a runner that's keeping me from my full speed? Could be a relationship. I have seen this on a number of occasions where believers are unequally yoked. One person in the relationship wants to run hard after God. Perhaps they have a radical calling. Perhaps they want to go to the mission field. Perhaps they want to go to ministry. Perhaps they want to pastor. Perhaps they want to go to seminary. Perhaps they want to forget all about the American dream and go live a radical life of obedience that might entail serious suffering. And they are connected to somebody who doesn't share that passion. They might be connected to somebody who they are legitimately in love with. And you know what happens when people are in love. Oh boy, can't think straight. (laughs) You need someone to come in from the outside to say, hey, you need to take stock of this relationship 
from a spiritual perspective. How often does that happen? Because I have met, I, I will never forget, there was a dear sister, a friend of mine, years ago, who radically felt called to the mission field, but her husband did not. And she prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for him that he would get a burden for the mission field, and eventually he did. And guess what? She won out on him. <laughs> And now they're serving on the mission field. But that can happen. And it can be a hindrance. It can be holding you back. You've got to be very careful. I know what I'm saying right now may be radical to some people, but the person that you're dating may not be the best for you spiritually. And that's what you need to really take stock. When I do like marriage counseling, that's one of the things I really try to determine is like, okay, is one person in the relationship going, you know, 80 and the other one's going 20? Right? And then they just think because they're in love, it's going to work out. Maybe. Or maybe you may be miserable in your relationship once you get married. And then it's too late because you're in a covenant. Forget it, baby. It's over. You're stuck. So be very wise in your relationships. You can be unequally yoked, maybe not as an unbeliever to a believer, but you can be unequally yoked as a mature to an unmature person. Be careful what ministry you get involved in, that it doesn't hold you back. Theologically, spiritually. Be careful of the company that you keep. Make sure that the, the, the brothers and the sisters that you fellowship with that are around you are pushing you to more faithfulness, more Christ-likeness, that are serious about walking with God, serious about holiness, serious about ministry, serious about Jesus Christ. All of these things are very important. Now turn with me because I kind of laid it heavy and thick on you here, but I want you to see brothers and sisters, that this is a chosen mindset. Philippians chapter 3. And the reason why I want to point out Philippians chapter 3 is because not only is it a parallel passage, but I think Paul does a tremendous job of helping us here. Look at Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. We know this passage. I press on toward the goal and the prize. Does that sound like Hebrews? It sure does of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, watch this, as many as are perfect. Now that Greek word should probably be translated mature. As many as are mature have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. Wow. (laughs) Paul's saying, if you disagree with what I'm saying, I trust that God will... Bring you around. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. See, it is an attitude. It is a mindset to run in a certain way. Finally, brothers and sisters, I want to deal with one last thing. Because I believe that it's very, very easy for people to lose their sight of the race. I'm concerned, and I think you should be as well, that what the, the, the author of Hebrews here is talking about is the most important thing in your life. He's talking about the most important thing in your entire life. Whether or not you, not the person next to you, not your children, not your spouse, you. Whether or not you will endure to the end. Book of Hebrews is a frightening book. 
in many, for many ways, it's a, it's, a, it's a book filled with warnings and threats of apostasy. And I want to point out to you that as Hebrews is talking about this, what is at stake is everything. Everything. This is not just a feel-good you know, passage of Scripture for inspiring you just to you know, be more chipper in your Christianity. This is talking about the potential for eternal disaster. That if you do not have the right mindset, you may, as Hebrew says, you may have an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. Notice what he says. There will eventually be, if you do not abide, if you do not run the race, if you do not focus spiritually, if you allow yourself to drift, if you do not, and we'll look at this next week, Lord willing, if you do not fix your gaze on Jesus, you may develop an evil heart of unbelief departing. That means you made a conscious choice to apostatize from Jesus Christ. And I say that only to say that I am a hardened, hardened, you know, I'm, I'm one of those staunch, hardened Calvinists. <laughs> I don't budge on the sovereignty of God. <laughs> you, I don't, there's not, you know, 4.5, there's not 4.9, you know, I'm somewhere probably in the sevens by now. But I understand, as many theologians have come to conclude from the letter of the Hebrews, that the warnings of apostasy is the means that God uses to preserve the faith of His elect. And that we had better not, as reformed folk, had better not ever underestimate the threats and the warnings of Hebrews to our own everlasting detriment. We need to, regardless of how staunch we are in our Reformed theology, we must feel the weight of these exhortations. Brothers and sisters, the weight, the threat, the fear of these exhortations is what will preserve us to the end. It is the means that God has chosen to preserve the faith of His elect. And I dare not underestimate that. Too much is at stake. In closing, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Because we're talking about keeping our eyes on the finish line. I want to show you what's on the other side of the ribbon when you cross. Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. And he who sits on the throne, it's what we're running to, said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said, write these words, they are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. These 
Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then the one, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. It is the one who overcomes who will gain the inheritance that Hebrews speaks about. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 15, we have an internal inheritance but jesus is saying the the exalted enthroned jesus in his heavenly session is saying on the other side of the finish line the one who overcomes will inherit all these things you will inherit the city of the living god you will inherit a new heavens and a new earth but guess what it's even better than that when he says, I will be his God, they will be my, my son, my children. What he's saying is that what you will inherit in the end, brothers and sisters, is eternal communion with God in the context of a covenant bond that can never be separated. Glory. Glo- don't lose sight of the goal. Don't throw away your reward. It has great, great It is a great reward. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I can sit here and give us a list of weights all afternoon. But ultimately, even as we sang, you are the judge of the secrets. And so I entrust, Lord, that you will search and probe our hearts. That by your spirit, you will put your hand, your thumb on those areas of our lives that are spiritually hindering us and that are not spiritually advantageous for us and that we have simply succumbed to. Wake us up and shake us up. Help us to take stock and with renewed zeal and commitment, help us to sever the weights and to kill the sin that so easily entangles us. Oh God, we confess before you who is sufficient for these things. Oh God, we confess before you our weakness. Oh God, we confess before you, even as Job says, Lord, you know that I am breath. What is man that you're even mindful of him? And so, Lord, we ask for your help. Help us, O God, especially when we are weak in the knees, where our hands are weak, our knees are feeble. Strengthen us, Lord, by your Spirit and your Word. In Jesus' name, amen.